0: Now on this first day, picturing the time when the whole world will begin to be holy and the fulfillment of this festival begins to take place. We do it today in type, looking to the future, but it is not long until this earth will finally have peace. So thank you for that. Well, yesterday I was going into First uh, and Second Peter for a reason. I had a target there, I got uh, a little bit sidetracked and went through some conduct and so on that God spe- expects of His people. Now uh, I want to pick it up where I left off a little bit and then get where I was headed. But we talked quite a little about becoming holy, as God is holy, and you know we speak of the seven holy days during the year, but uh, I didn't put it in quite these words yesterday, but every day is a holy day. Is it not? If we're to have holy thoughts and holy actions, then every day ought to be holy. So it's not just seven days a year, but every day of the year that we are to make holy. Not with the same meaning quite as those Sabbath days that he set apart as a picture of his plan but certainly we should be working at making every day holy and loving one another fervently, as we saw in verse 22. Uh, it's interesting. I read on down again a little bit this morning in verse 23. he says, being, But being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Uh echoing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 about us becoming transformed and becoming incorruptible instead of as we are today, dust to dust, ash to ash, but we become incorruptible. But the very next verse is one he quotes, which I uh, will get to in the book of Isaiah later on sometime in this series, but I think it's interesting that Peter quotes it right here from Isaiah 40. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof fails or falls away. Now that's mentioned in Isaiah 40 as part of the uh, message of the end-time church. And Peter mentions it here because what he says that I'm getting to in a little bit here is all about the end time and the establishment of the kingdom of God. So it's very pertinent to what we are talking about, and he is talking about here before he gets to that, about our conduct and about what we need to be to be part of that kingdom. So, yes, the Feast of Tabernacles is about the kingdom of God, but it's also about those who will be in the kingdom of God, and what they will be at that time and what they need to be working toward at this time. I think I mentioned the intense training that the kids of royalty go through on this earth, and we're to be the royalty of God as kings and priests and and the kingdom of God for a thousand years reigning with Christ. So we are in an intense time now to understand and to become what we need to be to be leaders of the world tomorrow. We are royalty in training. So we have to not go at this in a lackadaisical or Laodicean way, but we have to go about it in a fervent, a passionate way to bridge that gap, that gulf between what is us today and what Christ and His Father are. We are to be like them in every way. And as we look around at ourselves, or look in mirrors, we find that the flesh is fading as the grass, and withering as the flower. I was just noticing some flowers in my backyard three or four days ago. Uh, Fall has fell a little bit, and uh, they're beginning to wither, and not be as pretty as they were, and turn dry, and beginning to fade away, and I thought, hmm, that looks a little like me in the mirror, you know, (laughs) so there's a great deal to what Peter is saying here, and what Isaiah originally said, and in the context with which Isaiah said it is, we shall see, but the word of the eternal endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. So he tells us that we're to, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word to cause us to grow. That's in chapter 2, verse 2. And he calls us in verse 5, not blockheads, but lively stones. We're built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Emmanuel. So we're not to be lumps on the ground, we're to be lively stones, uh, part of the temple of God. He says that he, he is Christ is the chief cornerstone there in Ephesians 2.20, but we're also the blocks that are laid to build the temple. So we're likened to bricks or lively stones, but we're not to be dead stones. Uh, the rocks don't talk to you very much. They might echo what you say if you're out in the mountains, but they don't talk to you. Uh, We're here to be alive. Building blocks. So this is something that Peter takes very seriously. He goes on down, uh, verse 8, and talks about how Christ was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereof unto also they were appointed, Adam and Eve and everyone ever thereafter, was appointed to be disobedient and to be apart from God, with very, very few exceptions, because God determined from the time Adam and Eve first sinned that man would be that way for 6,000 years before a fundamental change would begin to take place. And that he would call only a very few, many are called, few are chosen throughout history to reveal his truth too, that they might do specific works that he needed done throughout history. So he says, most are concluded in unbelief. Paul says that in another place. And even Israel in Romans 11 says they are concluded in disbelief until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and then the kingdom is ushered in, and he says all Israel will be saved. But in the meantime, blindness has happened in part even to Israel. But then he turns and says they were appointed to that, to disobedience, to not knowing God. But there's somebody else in a different situation. But you, okay, the world was appointed to disobedience, but you, he's speaking to the church of God here, that Christ had begun under himself and the other apostles. So those who were listening to him who had been baptized as newborn babes, he's speaking to them. And he even quotes, Scriptures, in verse 24 we read, about the end time. And he's about to again. So he's not only including those that he was writing to at that time, he's referring to those who would be of them at the end time. Okay? We'll see that in a moment. But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a redeemed, it should be, or purchased people, not peculiar to the world where odd and peculiar, yes, but that's not what he said in the Greek. It was a purchased people, purchased by the blood of Christ. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, the world is in darkness, the darkness of Satan, but a few have been called out and shown the light. Now what to do? See where to walk, which in time past, were not a people, but are now the people of God. Now that's a pretty good upgrade, isn't it? We weren't a people. We didn't know each other, but now we're the people of God. Those of us and those like us who have been called elsewhere into the truth. Which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The world out there has not obtained mercy. And most of it is going to be killed here in the end time. He says nearly or a little over 90% of Israel will be killed. And over 90% of the Gentile world. So that out of 7.5 billion, only about 100 million will remain, according to the book of Daniel. That's a pretty small amount, certainly less than 90% of what is. Or more than 90%, excuse me. So he says, Have your uh, conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now that means that they won't now. We are despised and looked down upon, and this is not only happening to the church itself, which the world basically looked down upon when the gospel was being preached back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Now, the whole world is looking down on anyone who takes the name of Christianity. And they're killing Christians in Africa, in Europe, wherever. And the persecution against anyone who uses Christ's name is growing very, very rapidly right now as we speak. And the Pope is speaking essentially against Christianity right now. He's calling for a brotherhood of of the Muslims, the Christians, and the other strange and weird religions from around the world, to bring them into one fold. And it won't be under God. (laughs) It will be under Satan. Uh, That's the goal and the purpose, and that's what we see growing, is Satanism. They just opened a new... um, Memorial to Satan in Salem, Massachusetts, the place where they had the witch uh, killings with Baphomet. Satan there is the primary one to look at. Well, so it's, it's growing, and everything that's so-called Christian is being torn down. You can be put out of school and put in jail for mentioning Christianity now, but the, the Muslims get to get their prayer rugs out at school. And that's fine and dandy, even in this country. So we will be be looked down upon more and more, but they will glorify God for what they see in us in the day of visitation. What do you mean visitation? When God begins to visit the terrible things that are going to happen to the people of this earth, when he visits the plagues and the troubles of the book of Revelation on the world. And it it's coming very, very soon now. Okay, let's go on to chapter 3. Now, he ties this end time uh, that he's talking about in here uh, with something very important. Uh, he says in verse 16 of First Peter 3, "...having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers..." They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. It's better to be falsely accused than correctly accused, is it not? So don't worry about it. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. He suffered for us who were unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So his death and resurrection was to bring us to God. We had not had access to God the Father until the veil of the temple was ripped when Christ was killed. And now we have access directly to the Father through him. I mentioned to someone, I guess it's been three or four years ago, that there's nothing in the scriptures that say we ought to pray to Jesus. You should have seen the shocked look on that face. It's not there. You cannot find a scripture that says pray to Jesus. And yet that's what the whole Protestant world does. What did Jesus say? He says, pray the Father. That's what he said, in his name, or by his authority, or through him. All our prayers go through Christ, but they go to the Father. That's an access that was given only since his death and resurrection, which we should be very, very thankful for. Everybody in the Old Testament dealt with Christ alone, not with the Father. It's only been since then that we've had that opportunity. But let's get on on down. Verse nineteen, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, <coughs> which sometime were disobedient. When once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So he's. He's bringing this conduct that we ought to have in Christ forward, and then he ties it in with when Christ went and preached to the demons who had been imprisoned while Noah was preparing the ark. Now, those demons would have destroyed Noah and his work had God not held them back, and Christ went and talked to them during that time. Now, he's beginning to bring the story of Noah into this end-time discussion that he's making. I find that very interesting. He continues with that thought. The like figure, whereinto even baptism, does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Emmanuel. So he compares the flood of Noah and how only a few were saved to the end time and how only a few will be saved through Christ by the resurrection. And here's a thought I started yesterday, and it's encapsulated a little more here. In parentheses, he says he saves us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through Christ's resurrection. In other words, the sin is forgiven and set aside. It's forgotten. He says that when we are resurrected and in his kingdom, our sin will no longer ever be mentioned to us again. So it isn't sin that we're to be looking at right not what he's saying it isn't our sin that we're to be looking at it's the good conscience toward god through christ's forgiveness that is the emphasis the positive approach because of what he did for us that allows us salvation not the sin that would prevent that salvation sin prevents salvation so why would you focus on your sin his death and resurrection provide salvation, so look there where the answer is, not the past sin, which is depressing and discouraging and negative. We're supposed to be positive in our approach. The glass is more than half full. Through him, in faith, we can be immortalized. That's his purpose. And we're here to fulfill it through him. So look at that, not at the past. I've said this a thousand times (laughs) over the years in one way or another. But he puts it very clearly here of what our attitude and our approach and where our focus should be. You know, there's only one man I can think of, or know of, that actually walked on water, other than Christ. And he actually did. He saw Christ walking on the water, and Peter, being the lively stone that he was, said, I'm going to go meet him. And his idea and his focus was on Christ. And as long as he focused on Christ, he literally walked on water. And the minute he thought, I'm Peter and I can't do this, he went down immediately. See, focusing on Christ allowed him to do things that he could not normally do. And when he lost that focus, he couldn't do it anymore. So our focus has to be on Christ and what he can help us do. And he says if we have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, we could move mountains. Moving mountains is considerably more than a 200 man pound man walking on water, if you want to compare the two. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can become immortal and eternal through Christ who strengthens us. And there are going to be some incredible miracles done here in the end to back up those scriptures. Okay, so he compares Noah making it through the flood with baptism to us because that is what is the beginning of our salvation is being baptized, our sins washed away and our focus on Christ as our Savior. So there's a direct... uh, Type between Noah and the flood, and us and salvation, here at the end. Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Now, he continues this thought a little later on, Second Peter 2. He's telling us not to be pernicious and covetous and so on, In verse 4, he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to prison, or hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. He's already talked about how he went and preached to them, talked to them during Noah's building of the ark. And he mentions it again here. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just or righteous lot, vexed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. So he's building up to something here and saying there is destruction coming again such as was in the days of Noah, such as was in the days of Lot. Now in the days of Lot only, what, four were brought out and one looked back so only three actually made it, Lot and his two daughters. So he says it's this kind of conflagration that is coming again. Verse 9, the Eternal knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. Now let's go on to chapter 3. There's a lot in here, uh, but I I only want to pick up certain things for the moment. Chapter 3, let's go to verse 3. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. You can have the truth. You can speak those things that were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles, as he says in verse 2. But there will be those who scoff, who don't believe it. And they'll walk after their own desires. And say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now this is a position that a lot of people take. Peter's about to debunk it, and in a pretty powerful way, that is specific. Specific. Eh, I don't see things being any different. You talk to people in this country oh, you know, everything's going along okay, they're having a little trouble in Washington but they'll vote in so and so and everything will be okay depending on what your leaning is I've talked to people from Europe quite a bit in the last year uh, and I've asked quite a few of them, uh, probably more Germans than of any other country what do you think about all these Muslims coming in on these boats and they're coming in by the thousands, tens of thousands, and we're reading over here about rape and murder and all kinds of things and how they're changing your customs, how they don't intend to learn your language, but they intend to turn you into Muslims. And they say, "Oh, well, it's no big deal to us. I've been surprised by their reaction because we see it here. They're coming in in certain areas, especially in Minnesota and, and Minneapolis. I don't know where that gal with the turban is from that uh, is in Congress now. Uh, probably from up there. I don't know. Some, somewhere where a lot of Muslims obviously have settled, so they voted her in. She's in the U.S. Congress, dedicated to the destruction of the United States. And these people say, oh, I don't know, there's nothing wrong. I'm I'm working over here, and we do this, and they hardly notice anything going on. You realize we have probably millions of U.N. troops, Chinese troops, and Russian troops in this country now that have moved in in the last 10, 15 years, and most Americans are blissfully unaware of it? Going on. Things are just like they've always been. I got my job. I got my IRA, I got my 401k. I got a little money in the stock market. And oh, it's doing wonderfully. And everything is okay. They don't see destruction coming. God says it will come suddenly. They'll say peace, peace, and then sudden destruction. That's the way it's coming, according to God's word. Not mine, God's. So, they'll scoff. Where is the promise of his coming? Oh, yeah, right. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. This is not talking about Genesis 1-1, where it was all underwater, And then he divided the water and the land came up. This is talking about Noah's day when there was water and there was land sticking out of the water. And then it all got covered by water. He's been talking about Noah all along here. So that's still what he's talking about.
1: Whereby the world
0: that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, so since then, and God said, I'll never overflow the earth with water again. Send us a rainbow to, so we'd believe that. We'll never do that again. But he says, we got trouble coming again, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved to fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he says there's another destruction coming, not by flood, but by fire, by trouble of all kinds, as described in other prophecies. But beloved, Now, he tells us something here that is critical and important and specific. But be loved, you, members of the church, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, he's just discussed how people will say, Eh, this thing's going on, it's going on, and we've got climate change, and this will happen, and that will happen, but everything's okay. And even the alternative media today that say, Yes, there's a big depression coming, as big as 1929 or bigger, They say, if you'll just get silver and gold, you'll come out on the other side and you'll be fine. That's as far as they go. Except the ones that say, talk about the uh, clandestine hernia, isn't it? The secret rupture. I joke. Uh, The secret rapture that's coming to them. They'll, They'll be raptured away from all this trouble. So there's a certain amount of people that believe in that. Well, you know, there is a certain verity or truth to people being raptured away. When Christ returns, he's going to take the 144,000 to meet him in the air. It's not the same understanding and belief that the Protestants have about the secret rapture. But it is a specific number of people who will rise to meet him. It will not be secret, however. When he returns, every eye will see him. So there's nothing secret about it, but they are picked up and carried up into the heavens to become the bride of Christ. So it's not secret, and uh, you can use the word rapture if you want, but resurrection I prefer, since that's the one God uses. It is not a secret rapture, it is a public resurrection. Okay, So they have a little truth, as usual. Very little. But don't be ignorant that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So, as we saw yesterday, he had creation week, and each day represents a thousand years in his plan. And Paul confirmed that in Hebrews 4, saying that the Sabbath is the picture of the millennial rest that we are to enter. haven't entered it yet, but it is to be entered. So he's saying, things aren't going to just go on and rock on and on. A thousand, a day represents a thousand years. He's saying there is a limit to the time that man has on this earth. He's quoting Numbers 14.34. And he's referring to the seven days of creation, representing each a thousand years. So a 7,000 year plan. Verse 9, the eternal is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. In other words, he's going to be on time. We only have 6,000 years, and then the immediate transition into the millennium, the Sabbath of rest for a thousand years. OK? It'll come on time, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now Peter's saying there's a limited time here, and he's not going to be slack concerning that, but he's not going to speed it up either, because he wants us to come to repentance. He's working with us, he's hoping that we be what we should be, so that we can be part of what he's doing. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Now, he's not saying there that everything on earth is going to be burned up and become a charred cinder. Some people believe that, but he's quoting from Isaiah 24 is where he's quoting from. And that's the one that the Seventh-day Adventist Ellen G. White uses to show that the earth is going to be completely burned up. But she's dishonest when she reads Isaiah 24, because it does use this language that Peter just quoted. But in several places it says, and few men left. doesn't say they'll all be destroyed in Isaiah 24, but few men left. Well, isn't that what Peter's been talking about? It'll be like in the days of Noah, comparatively few, as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, comparatively few. Here, Peter quotes Isaiah 24 and says, yes, we've got fire and trouble coming, but Isaiah 24 says there'll be a few left. But his point is, let's be alert, let's be alive, let's be awake, knowing that it's coming on time. And we've only been allotted 6,000 years before the change comes. Now, where are we? Where are we? If that's all we got, we ought to know when it is, (laughs) when it ends, so that we can be ready, as ready as possible. Now, he says that these days will come as a thief in the night. I just quoted how he says it will be sudden destruction. But didn't we just read a day or a week ago how God says we're not in the dark, we're in the light, and that these things should not slip up on us? Didn't I read that to you? Yeah, right out of the Scripture. We are to know. And I think that's what Peter's telling us. But you, beloved know that this thing will be on time, and that a day is as a thousand years. Now, I don't know what he was in his thinking, or where he was. Uh, Christ had declared in Luke 4, the Jubilee. And says, this is the beginning of the events and the preaching that will lead to the Jubilee that brings peace and prosperity. Now, it obviously wasn't that jubilee, because it didn't happen then, did it? And in fact, the church went into great persecution right after that, and the apostles all wound up being killed but John. So he couldn't have been talking about then being the culmination of it all. Now, Peter and the other apostles, according to the things they wrote, it's very clear they thought that this thing was going to end in their lifetime. Maybe they thought that since Christ declared that in 27 A.D., 77 A.D. would be the end. And that was within their lifetime. Because we tend to think of things in our perspective, from our viewpoint, do we not? Did we not do that in worldwide? And we were wrong at that time. I don't think we're wrong anymore. But... Christ declared that that time would come. Now he says in the third year or the third day to revive. Well, okay, from the time that he preached and read from Isaiah 61 there in Luke 4, we've had 2,000 years almost. And... A day is as a thousand years, so day one, and we're almost at the end of day two, and then the third year comes the millennium, third thousand years. After three days, revive us, or revive us in the third day, not at the end of it, is the way he puts it. So the two days is almost done. We know that there were four thousand years prior to Christ coming to the earth. The scholars have argued about whether it was 4,025 or 3986 or whatever date they count back and try to get. But they know it's been close to 4,000 years uh, from the time of Adam and Eve until Christ. So that's four days, 4,000 years. Uh, Then you have two days left after Christ made that proclamation in order to come up with six days. If there were four before, then there have to be two after. And revive us in the third day. The seventh thousand years, beginning of it. He won't he won't put it off. He'll do it right away as soon as the third year begins. Jubilee of twenty twenty seven, I do believe. We have gone approximately nineteen hundred and ninety three years, or ninety two, whatever it is since Christ made that statement in 27 A.D. Two days, 2,000 years, a day as is a year, would put us at 2027. So we're almost the end of 2,000 years since Christ made that proclamation. That would equal what? 6,000. 4,000 before, 2,000 after, six days complete. God is not slack concerning his promise. This thing isn't going to go on and on. Peter said it. When those thousand-year time periods are done, it's done. Okay? Believe God? I can count years. You can count years. You're going to be one of those that says, Oh, come on now, you're setting dates and this is all wrong. All I'm doing is telling you what Scripture says. I'm not going to say this will happen in 2027, or that Christ will return in 2026. But based on what Peter and all these other scriptures are saying, I don't see any of the answer. Not only that, if you read Matthew 24 and other scriptures, it says that the generation that he calls at the end will not die out until this happens. And he says that we're to watch for the leaves on the trees... To know that spring is near. When is spring? Time of renewal. What is the beginning of the millennium? Time of renewal. It's almost here. We see the seeds of destruction have been planted on this earth. And World War III is not very far away. Worldwide famine is not very far away. It's very close. You want to know when? Well, read these scriptures and take it for what it says. Do you want to call me a false prophet? Go ahead. But that's what I read, that's what I think I see. And 2027 comes and it doesn't happen. I'll be pretty close to dead anyway, so it don't matter what you call me. I don't care. All right? Now, that being said. I think we need to have some perspective and perhaps some of you younger people need it also of where we've been and where we're headed. We all need to know where we're headed. But sometimes to know where you're headed you've got to kind of know where you've been. Know what I mean? Now, if Christ said... The acceptable year of the Lord was 27 A.D. He proclaimed that, probably at atonement, I would imagine. Then we should expect, somewhere along the line, that if the 50-year jubilee increments were stated as being in play right there, he was announcing that that was a jubilee year, the acceptable year. So all you got to do is start counting forward in 50s until something important happens. Did anything really, really important happen in 1245 A.D.? Or 1336? Or 1704? Or pick a number. That happened in a 50-year increment from 27 A.D.? I guess you could go through history and count it every 50 years and look at history, if if there is any, and see what happened in those times. But Peter is tying it here to the fires and the trouble and the destruction at the end time. Right? So, if there were 6,000 years... And two of them, two of those thousand years, came after Christ. It would be sometime toward the end of those two that we should begin to look for something, I would think. Knowing that the seventh thousand years would be the beginning of the millennium and a complete change in the promises of God would come. So, somewhere along there, toward the end of the sixth thousand years, We should be looking for signs of something happening, because God says, I will do nothing except I reveal it through my servants, the prophets. Okay? So, all the things that the prophets said, that are written in the Bible, were said ahead of this, and very frequently when you read those prophecies, it says, this is what will happen in the latter days, or the last days. Daniel said it over and over about, I'll tell you, Daniel, what will happen in the latter days to your people. So it all has to do with the end time just before the Sabbath begins. Because you've got to wrap up what man has been doing and wrap up what Satan has been doing and begin what Christ is going to do. So, I look to 19... 19- 26 and 27, and I see something happen. This is in the autobiography of Herbert Armstrong. If you younger people haven't read it, you probably should. Because there's an awful lot of information in there that would help you understand better what's happening today. But he was challenged on one of the most pivotal things there is. What does God say? Exodus Is it 2031? won't come to mind for sure. But it says the Sabbath is a sign between me and my people. The Sabbath has always been a sign. Why? Because the Sabbath represents the creation and what God did for us. It represents the millennium, which is a time of rest and peace for the whole world. So the Sabbath is the very key to beginning to understand God and his plan and purpose. You can't find a doctrine more important really than the Sabbath anywhere in the Bible other than a summary of the summary of the commandments, love God above all, love your neighbors yourself. Summarizes commandments, but the Sabbath's in there because the Sabbath has to do with all your neighbors being blessed in the kingdom of God, the millennial rest. So, okay, Loma Armstrong, his wife, had begun to talk to somebody and had learned that the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week in the scriptures. So she took it to Herbert Armstrong, who was a businessman, and he said she was crazy. He'd grown up as a Quaker, Protestant, and... uh, she, oh, no, Herbert, This is this is important. This is the Sabbath of God. Well, I'll prove it is not, was his response. He was a very energetic type person, and he had strong opinions. I knew him pretty well, and he was a man of strong opinions. I will prove to you that is not true. And boy, he got out his Bible, and he started digging and digging and digging, and pretty soon he says, that is true. it was there but God chose a man who was essentially morally honest who was willing to accept truth when he saw it you know he even said and other Winston Churchill I think said that a lot of people will go on through life and they'll stumble over the truth and fall down they'll get up and go on as if nothing had happened Well, Herbert Armstrong wasn't that type. When he proved it, he'd proved it. And he accepted it and started keeping it. And he kept studying. And he began to learn about the annual Sabbaths, one of which we're keeping today. And he began to learn that we're not immortal souls, but we're immoral souls. There is a difference. And that we die and we have to be resurrected, and he began to learn the plan of God. And at some point then he learned that there's a 7,000 year plan followed by the kingdom of God in the millennium. So it's the gospel about the kingdom to come, and he saw it was the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now that hadn't been preached, as he attested, for 1900 years, essentially. But once he learned the truth, he began to proclaim it almost immediately. So he began to learn these things in 1926 and 27, which was 27, a Jubilee year, 1900 years after Christ had made that statement. And he thought, as Peter and Paul and James had, that this would all happen within his lifetime. Now he saw some important things happen in the church that occurred in 19 years and another 19 years. So he came up with this 1900, this 19-year cycle thing uh, because the the plain truth began. I, it was in 34, I believe it was in January, and 19 years later, in 1953 the doors open to preach the gospel to Europe. So he saw a 19 in there and thought it was important. And then that led to the idea of 1972 being the beginning of the tribulation and Christ returning in 1975. Hence the booklet 1975 and prophecy. And in the late 60s, a few began to say, it doesn't look like it's going to be that quick. And then finally we realized in 72 the tribulation hadn't started and World War III hadn't occurred. And to him, Germany had attacked Europe and ultimately America twice in that century. And he saw those prophecies about the Assyrian coming against Israel. So he thought, well, that must be Germany because they've tried it twice. They're going to try it one more time. Jerry Fleury is still preaching that, among others. Even though Germany doesn't have an army or an air force or, uh, you know, two pop guns and a tank, I think is about it. They don't have the power to do what has got to be done shortly. Okay, he understood doctrinal truths that got... Us enough understanding of the plan and the purpose of God, that little booklet, "Why were you born was what about eight quarter pages might have might have amounted to two full typewritten eight and a half by elevens or three, something like that wasn't very big, but in that it explained very simply that we were born to become God now that's blasphemy to most Christians. you're born to be God. Well, wasn't it said that Christ was not ashamed to be called God? He was a human being. And didn't he make us in his image to become his sons and his daughters, his children? How is that blasphemy then that we're to be like him? He's recreating himself. All the Bible is about family. All of human experience up to this point, at least, has been family, except in Sodom and Gomorrah and America. Now it's queerdom. But it's all been about family up until these people uh, got hold of things. So God is just increasing his family. But as I explained yesterday, he doesn't want rebellious members in the family. So he puts us through an extreme training period before he changes us. And Paul makes it very, very clear, does he not, in 1 Corinthians 15, that kind begets kind. Birds beget birds. Sheep beget sheep. People beget people. God begets like kind himself. His family. Did any of you marry a donkey or a sheep or a dog? Maybe a jackass, I'll give you that. But no, we married like kind, didn't we? We married a person, a human being. And God says any kind of bestiality is completely perverted. So he wanted us to marry like kind, male and female, made he them, And only male and female. Somebody recently told me, well, you take religion out of it, and why should we get married? We can just live together. And if we get tired of each other, we can move on and live with someone else. Because apart from religion, there's no basis for marriage. And he's right. God instituted marriage in the garden. And if you take God out of the picture, then man is free to do whatever man wants to do. With God in the picture, you better be real careful what you do. So he says, that kind begets kind. And he says, corruption cannot inherit incorruption. And the eternal life and physical life are totally different. So he says, we'll be transformed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll no longer be flesh, but we'll be spirit. So God clearly says in Scripture, you're going to be spirit. Well, what kind of spirit? Same kind he is. Because you'll be a spirit and you'll be the bride of Christ. And he will not marry anything but his own kind. So if you're to be the bride, you've got to be like him. And what is he like? Face shines like the sun in its full glory. He's eternal. He's glorious. And if he's eternal and glorious, we're going to be eternal and glorious. Because we'll be his bride, and we won't be a lesser being. Now, Herbert Armstrong understood that. And he preached that. And then he wrote Mystery of the Ages years later, where he made that little Why Were You Born booklet into a full-size book explaining this mystery of god and the mystery will not be solved as peter said i mean as paul said in 1st corinthians 15 until we are transformed and the mystery evaporates it's still difficult for me to imagine what god really is and to imagine being that way but that mystery will clear up suddenly boom Eureka! So, he understood those things, but he was not up to date too much on prophecy. He didn't really understand all the things that would occur and how long it would take. Okay? So, he knew trouble was coming. He knew the end was coming. But God did not reveal to him the time frame. Why? He wasn't going to be around. Didn't need to know. Paul, I mean, there's, there's precedence for that. Peter, James, Paul, all of those guys, according to what they wrote, as I said, expected it to come during their lifetime. Now, Christ knew that it wasn't coming, but he just didn't tell them. You know, he didn't always tell all the truth, nothing but the truth. Sometimes he spoke in parables so that they would not understand, could not understand. I heard in the Methodist church in Sunday school that he spoke in parables to make everything so clear for everybody. And then he says, I spoke in parables so they couldn't get it. That's his words. No, he doesn't always tell the truth. Now, he doesn't lie. But he just doesn't tell you everything. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, when you need to know, he'll let you know. I think we're at the need to know place. This thing is not very far away. When six thousand years is going to be up, if I can count it all. And he says that that might even be cut short, didn't he? So not only are we on a very short leash, it might get shorter. So we don't know the exact day and hour. Uh, I don't think he's going to cut the tribulation short, though. People have thought, well, that's what he'd cut short. I don't think so. He said over and over, 1260, three and a half, 42 months. I don't think he, by his own word, can cut that short. He says he would cut it short lest no flesh be saved alive. When will we be in jeopardy of no flesh being saved alive? From the time of the first resurrection, when he takes his bride up to be married, and comes back to rule the earth, there's a year's time. He takes off a year to cheer up his bride, Deuteronomy 24, 5. And while he's gone, the seven last plagues are on the earth. And if you read the seven last plagues, it's an awful, awful time. And if that went on for a full year, there might be no flesh saved alive. So he may cut that short. That's the only time when all flesh is threatened. (laughs) He's not threatened during the tribulation, the time of the two witnesses. So after they die, the whole world's going to party. Be happy that they're dead. So that's no, there's no time up until they die that it would be cut short, is there? No, the time that it could be no flesh saved would be the seven last plagues. That he might cut short, cut his honeymoon short, if you will, and come back to finish subduing the earth and set up the kingdom of God with his saints. So Herbert Armstrong didn't know, need to know that. Uh, he just needed to know what to tell us in order to get us on the path toward salvation and to support the work that God was causing him to do. Now, he thought his job, I've gone over this before, but I, I want to say it again in this context, he thought his job was Matthew 24, 14. And God let him think that, because it... Kind of put the spurs to him. It says in verse 14 of Matthew 24, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. And then he ties that directly with the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. That you flee to a place of safety. And then the great tribulation will start in verse 21. So, the gospel has to be preached. And the abomination will be set up. And that's the time that the three and a half years of tribulation and of preaching the gospel begins. He says, as soon as the gospel is preached around the world as a witness, the end will come. Now, Herbert Armstrong preached for a lot of years. But he did not preach to all nations, to all nations of the world. He got around to a lot of them, but not all of them. And it wasn't given as a witness to the whole world. And then he died. And the end didn't come. And it's been over three decades since he died. And the end still hasn't come. So very obviously... He didn't fulfill Matthew twenty four fourteen, or the rest of Matthew twenty four fourteen would now be fulfilled. But it hasn't been. You haven't seen the tribulation start. And you haven't seen the gospel preached to the whole world as a witness. And not only that, but if you want to prove this, and I guess it needs to be proved, because Jerry Fleury still thinks it's going to happen, and so does Living and so does United. They think that Herbert Armstrong was the Elijah to come. That he gave, restored all truth and that when he was done, the end would come. Well, read in Revelation 11. It talks about the plagues of Egypt and all those things that the two witnesses are going to do. Have we seen those things happen? No. That hasn't happened. Herbert Armstrong didn't do that. Ed Armstrong didn't do that. They didn't do it. They didn't perform any miracles like that. So how could they have been the final Moses and Elijah? Couldn't have been. By that very testimony. We're still here. Still yet to be done. So. He preached, and he taught, and I'll show you what his true calling was. Go over to Matthew 28. He had the same uh, calling that the disciples become apostles had. Go you therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of of Christ. This is uh, this is very badly mistranslated here, and is one of the primary ones that's used to prove the Trinity. But if you go to the Greek, it's not in there. And everywhere else you find baptizing, it is in the name of Jesus only, or Emmanuel as we are told to call him today. Same being. So this is not true, but... Their commission was to go as far as they could to all nations that they could reach and baptize people, bring them into the church, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So he's saying here that he was giving a commission to his ministry, which then consisted of twelve men. It was later (coughs) expanded. through ordination to include others. And what they were to teach was everything that he had taught, all things he had commanded, and that he would be with that effort all the way to the end of the world. That means that he's still with the idea of preaching everything he taught by those he has commissioned to do it until the end of this age comes. Well, Herbert Armstrong was part of that, and I think his overall commission within that was that many would be called so that few could be chosen, <coughs> and what kind of a message did he give? Now, I can remember from a child back in the early 50s listening to X E L O and X E G from Mexico, uh, barely on the car radio. And he was giving some pretty strong messages back then. I can remember him going through Ezekiel. That comes to mind in particular as a memory. Where he was really getting on this nation and saying, if we don't repent, that we're going to be a third going into famine and pestilence, a third into uh, war, and a third taken captive. I remember him quoting those scriptures. And it was pretty powerful. He wasn't a pipsqueak. When he said it, he said it loud and long. So he did give somewhat of the prophecies about the end of the age. But it morphed into a friendlier gospel for the most part. You didn't hear him speaking like that in the 60s and 70s and 80s. You heard more of a... Overall, it was. Uh, there's, there's a way of give and a way of get. I was, I was trying to bring that back. There's a give way and a get way. And if you do the give way, then you'll come under the peace of God. If you do the get way, like the world is, then you're under the influence of Satan and so on. <clears throat> so it wasn't a proclamation of disaster, as more it was more as it was a friendly calling type of message. And then Ted Armstrong almost got away from preaching the gospel at all. He was more into just trying to convince us that there was a creator God instead of evolution. So we heard about platypuses and whales and hummingbirds for 20 years. Used to irritate me. Still does when I think about it. And he tried to get me to do some of the writing of those programs for him when I was a senior in college. He wanted me to do research on bees and how they proved that there had to be a creation. And that was my first assignment. And that sat on the desk on the left corner for the rest of my senior year. And I could not make myself do it for some reason. Had I, I would have wound up on his team in Pasadena. And me being on his team would have been a disaster. And I will not explain that. God didn't want me there. When it came time for manpower meetings and they were trying to decide what to do with the seniors from that year, he said, I want Daryl here to help me. And John Hill and Rod Meredith said, no, he's a natural for the field ministry. He needs to go out in the field. And finally, he was convinced that's where I needed to be. So anyway, it was a more or less friendly, calling type of work. And that's what you need. It says, call them, convince them, baptize them. It's what James and Peter and John did. They went out, some miracles happened. Uh, The gospel was preached. People came and were baptized uh, and made a part of the church. Later there was a great falling away because... Some of them were not truly converted and truly convinced, and they fell away. Same things happened here at the end that happened in the early New Testament church. It's interesting that he began his work in 26 and 27, and within 70 years, it was gone. Uh, When Christ began the work with the 12 apostles, 70 years later, it was gone. So what happened... From 27 A.D. to 100 A.D., about 70 years, was the same thing that happened from 1927 A.D. to mid to late 90s, about 70 years, and it was pretty much all gone. So it's repeated. Now, I look at that and I say, we count 50 years, 50 years, 50 years, we come to 1927, a jubilee year. And something starts, just like it did when Christ preached it in 27. What he preached, or said, started, lasted 70 years. What Herbert Armstrong did and started, lasted 70 years. Is there any parallel here? Duh. Same gospel. Same material. Same history and same happening. Same pattern. Happened again. Now, I mentioned the other day, well, we had a jubilee during his ministry. If 1927 was a jubilee, then 1977 would have been a jubilee. And I said, I don't attach anything I can think of in particular to that. Aha! This morning, I think I found it. Wasn't really looking for it, but I stumbled across it because I was researching something else about him. (laughs) 1977, Herbert Armstrong had a heart attack. It's off the Ivory Coast of Africa. And he apparently did not breathe for a minute and a half. Anything much beyond that, and she goes away. Uh, He was anointed very quickly, and they started CPR, and a minute and a half later, he breathed. Now, that's the most significant thing so far I've seen happen in 1977. But think about it. God started the work through that man in 1926 and 7. In 1977, 50 years later, he more or less died. Had he not come back, I'm not saying he was dead, but for all practical purposes, if had been another minute or two, he'd have been gone. Had he died in 1977, the work would have stopped right there. wouldn't have been finished. Without him, it would have fallen apart in 1977. So what happened in 1977? The work almost died. Just as it's almost going to die, or will die, right here at the end of the next jubilee period. But God gave him an extension of life, whereby he finished what he needed to do. After he came back to, I don't know how soon after, might have been a day or two or a month, I don't know. But he prayed that God would give him another ten years of vigorous life to finish the work, was his prayer. And he lived for... One month shy of nine years after that. He told me in the last time that I talked with him in 1983, we were going into his office for a conference, and he says, excuse me a minute, I have to go take these heart pills. He says, I know I probably shouldn't do it. But he says, if I die, the work will fall apart. That was in 1983. 1983. In 1986, he died, and the work began to fall apart. But his job was finished. He had made a great calling work, and the extent of what happened under him is truly amazing if you stop to think about it and look at it. He was a failing businessman who had made some money in Chicago, but it went away. He tried advertising and things in Oregon, and it sort of it didn't work, and he had to pray for a dime for milk for the baby, and someone brought him a dime. And on and on, stories like that. And then he moved to Pasadena, and I think God did that. Ezekiel 17 pretty, pretty well proves it. I won't go through all that to, today. We're already done, aren't we? Uh, But in 1977, he lived. So there was a certain liberty that he was given, a certain opportunity, a certain freedom to continue his work. I think that's significant. Now, it wasn't the final jubilee, because that one's going to be fireworks everywhere. But all of those between 27 A.D. to 1927, not much happened, but in 1927 it did. An in-time work began, and I think I'll probably have a little more to say about that uh, tomorrow, but we'll stop for today with that thought that it continued, we'll see where it went, because we need to know what all happened and why it happened the way it did in order to know what's coming next, because it's critical to us, it's close, closer than it's ever been, at least. So hold that thought, and we'll continue tomorrow, God willing.